Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 through 29. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In Exodus, in Exodus chapter 33, Moses says, God, I want you to show me your glory. And God says, I will show you my goodness and I will declare my name. So all three of those things are exactly the same thing. His glory, his goodness, and his name. And he hides Moses in the cleft of a rock and he covers his eyes so he can't see God. And as he passes by, he says something. It's an amazing statement. It's in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And I've put it in front of you because I want to read it. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Some say that this passage is one of the most important passages in all of world literature. Why would they say that? It's because God says to Moses, I'm going to show you my goodness. And we say, yay. And we latch on to that. We latch on to the mercy and grace and slow to anger and all of those words that are in blue. Did you notice that? <laughs> and then he says something that doesn't connect with us. And those are the words that are in red. The red words, justice, holiness, wrath. I will never clear the guilty. In other words, every sin has to be punished. There is a penalty that must be paid. And what we can deduce from this little speech that God gives as he passes Moses is that he is both a God of love and law. We could say it this way. God is the forgiving God who never forgives. Isn't that an amazing, that's a, ter- that, that's a paradox. How can you make that statement? But that's exactly what God says. I am the forgiving God who will never forgive. And maybe that's the answer as to why this text is so pivotal and so groundbreaking. Because 
Moses' message was clear. God says to him, you will never know me fully. You will never know my goodness. You will never know my glory. You will never know my name fully until you see that I am both a God of love and of fury. I am both a God of holiness and compassion. I am a God of law and promise. And to see all of my goodness is to see that both are always present. I am the forgiving God who never forgives. Now that's unlike any other religious God that I know of. It's unlike our tendency and our natural comfort. We gravitate to one side or the other. We're either people who gravitate naturally to love or we're people who gravitate naturally to justice. Somebody pulls out in front of you, which way do you go? (laughs) I know which way I go, (laughs) right? If you fill the world with people who don't believe there's any law, society will fall apart. Just, just people who want to love everybody, society will fall apart. But on the other hand, if you fill the world with people who are sure that you're saved by obeying the law and law-keeping and justice is the way to a good society, society will also fall apart. People don't believe there's any other grid but one side or the other, but our brakes would be pressed and our tires would screech if we ever found a person who was both at the same time. And that's what God is saying to Moses. I am the God of both. I am the both the God of law and of promise. And that's where Paul will la- that's what Paul will latch on to in Galatians chapter 3 and he will use this argument in his case that he's making in chapters 3 and 4 of Galatians. If you've been with us, these are arguments that Paul is trying to use to attempt to pry the Galatian Christians away from the ideas of the teachers who have come in and they've taught a different gospel than the one Paul preached to them in the beginning, namely that Jesus is a great guy and we need Jesus in our life and there's salvation in Jesus, but there's also salvation in keeping the Jewish Law, And if you really want to be saved, you need to become Jewish in all of your actions and doings. And Paul writes to these people and he says, oh, you foolish Galatians. And we've been saying it this way, oh, dear idiots, right? It's like somebody from the south patting you on the head and saying, oh, bless your heart. That's it. It's an endearing backhanded slap designed to wake them up from their error. Surely, surely somebody has some spell on you. He says, surely you're bewitched if if you're starting to think this way. And with that umbrella, Paul gives them a series of arguments and reasons why the teacher's way to be right before God and the way they've now adopted is the way of the idiot. It's foolish. And the argument we'll cover today looks like this. Only in the gospel do law and promise come together. Only in the gospel. Nowhere else. We naturally track to one side or the other. That's our normal course. But the gospel, Jesus Christ, holds law and promise together always. Look at verse 21. Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. Paul starts out this way. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Paul has just spent time 
in his chapter 3 arguing that the promise of God is what brings about his love and mercy and salvation. It's the promise of God, not anything we do, not law-keeping. And in verse 21, Paul anticipates the kind of retort that he's going to get from the teachers. He's going, they're going to say, well, if, if it's all promise and not law, then aren't law and promise opposed? Aren't they contrary to one another? I mean, why does God give both if all we really need is promise? And it's the same as saying, why isn't God just a God of love? Why don't we shove God to the love side? Why can't he be just all love? Why won't that work? If it was always love and promise and not Abraham's goodness and law-keeping that, that got him the blessing, but God's promise that got the blessing to him, that brought blessing, then why in the world the law? And the scriptural groundwork he does here in a few verses is this. Paul needs to help them understand you're not understanding the role of the law. The role of the law is to bring us to Christ. That's what it's for. In verse 21, he says, if law keeping could save us, then by all means, we should keep the law. But you and I have been there. We can't quite keep it, can we? It doesn't work. Verse 22, the law not only doesn't work to save us, but the law actually imprisons us. It only points out our sin. It names us lawbreakers, but God is faithful in his promise of love and blessing and he sends Jesus to people who can't keep the law so that salvation might come to those who believe in the name of Jesus and he says that's where you are you dear idiots Galatians but I want you to think a minute back before Jesus came before there was a Jesus to believe in to put your faith in all there was was a law to be obeyed and we couldn't do it, could we? It held us down. It locked us up. It kept us prisoner until Jesus would come and faith would rule the day. And so verse 24, and this is the, the important picture that we need to spend some time on today. The law was our guardian, is what some of your translations says, until Christ came and we could be saved by our faith. Now, the word for guardian is kind of a fun one. It's paedagogos. And we get words in our English language like pedagogy and pedagogue. And some of you who have been down the teaching track kind of know what those words kind of hint at. Pedagogue means teacher. Pedagogy is the subject of teaching or how to learn. And so what Paul is saying here is that the law was our teacher until Christ came. Not yet. Hold on. Hold on to that. Um, I didn't, I didn't tell Marcy where I was going, so that's okay. Uh, the, 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 the word is a helpful picture, and it, it helps us to know about first century culture when we talk about this word paedagogos. It was not uncommon in Paul's day for people to have a paedagogos for their children. Uh, you might immediately think, oh, okay, that's a tutor or it's a teacher, but it wasn't quite that. The paedagogos was usually a slave and usually a, a person that wasn't well-educated or learned in any way, but they were a person in the life of a child to teach them the most basic and rudimentary things. Do you remember, Billy, how we tie our shoes? 
What do we always do before we eat? We wash our hands, right? What do we say when somebody does something nice for us? Thank you. Yes, right? Very good. And the real schooling was what the Pythagoras prepared the kids for. The real subjects, math and science, philosophy, history. Those subjects were left to the real teacher. And it was the job of the Pythagoras to make sure that the kids arrived at that point prepared. All the basics covered. They can tie their own shoes so now that they can learn from the real teacher. And so the Pythagoras was more of a nanny or a guardian, or let's, let's say this, the Pythagoras was a babysitter, a babysitter. And that is the picture of what Paul is trying to say that the law is to us. The law is your babysitter. Now, anybody here have a babysitter when you were young? Yes? Yes? All right, very good. There are uh, some of you who grew up in Fort Scott. There are some famous babysitters in Fort Scott. Like there are groups of kids who still connect and would identify with the babysitter that they had. And because uh, I was one of Dorothy's kids, right, way back. And I was one of Ruthie's kids way back. We still identify that it is such a formative time in our life. But here's the thing about our babysitter. I'm guessing that you didn't need them this morning. Say yes. Right, yes, good, good, I'm glad. That's, that's the right answer. You've grown up, right? The babysitter taught and reprimanded and guided and laid down expectations so that one day you would be ready for the grown-up place of learning. And because of that effort from your pedagogos, your babysitter, one day you were able to function on your own. You didn't have to have her, him or her tie your shoes. You could wipe your own nose. You no longer needed change. You no longer needed constant supervision. And all of that basic life instruction had taken root. And so now you could do things for yourself. And the babysitter was no longer needed. They were successful in what they did. The babysitter's ultimate goal is to work himself or herself out of a job. Right? If you don't, you're not very good. <laughs> the toddler becomes the two-year-old. And the two-year-old becomes the kindergartner that hopefully can tie their own shoes, clean their own face, go to the bathroom by themselves. That's the goal. And Paul says that's what the law is to us. That's what the law was. The law was our babysitter. The law constantly supervised us, guided us, showing us we were sinners. And it did a, its job because it handed us off. It led us to the only teacher that could really instruct us in how to truly attain life, Jesus Christ. And after it led us there, it handed us off. It had done its job. And you can see what he's trying to say. Paul says, oh, dear idiots, trying to keep the law in order to earn your salvation is like still needing the babysitter to wipe your nose. The law has the power to show us that we are not righteous, but the law cannot give us power to be righteous. And ironically, if we think that we can be righteous by law-keeping, then we've missed the main point of the law. The law does its work to lead us toward a recognition of our need for salvation by grace. The law then, Paul says, here's his argument, the law does not oppose the promise, but it supports it. And it points out our need of it. And in verse 25, he says, faith in Christ has come 
And we no longer need the law. We are no longer under the law. The guardian, the babysitter that the law was to us, it's no more. Now, there's an important note here. There will always, always be a standard of law to keep. If the babysitter does their job, then you know how to wipe your nose. The point is, you will always, the rest of your life, have to keep your face clean, or at least we want you to, okay? Please do. There will always be a standard of law to keep. You just don't need the babysitter to tell you to do it anymore. That's important. The law taught us right and wrong. It led us to Christ. It handed us off. And now we act like adults. When we were under the law, we were children, we were kids, and we obeyed the law because of punishment and reward. Share your toys or I'm going to stand you in the corner again. And so we shared our toys, right? But now we're not under the law. The babysitter has handed us off. And it doesn't mean that we no longer share our toys. It means that we no longer have to be told to share our toys. We just do it. Because it's the right thing to do. And our new motive for doing right is based on a relationship with a person. I want to share with others because I love, not because I'll be punished or rewarded. Oh, dear idiots, Paul writes. Do you want to be treated like children? Then obey out of fear. Go back to the law as if it was your babysitter. But do you want to be treated like an adult? Then obey out of love. Because grateful joy is a motive that will lead us to much more endurance and obedience than fearful compliance. Okay? So, the best part of the sermon starts right here. Because in verse 26, Paul says, he lays down all this groundwork theologically about the law and promise. And then he says, for. And what that means is, here's what this means. The law guided us to Jesus. Jesus came in faith and made us right with God. The law handed us off. And here's what that means. Number one, it means you're all sons. You are all sons. Because of the promise of God and has come to us in Christ through faith in baptism, we are all sons of God. I want you to think about what that phrase, sons of God, means. Who is, at the end of the day, the only son of God? Jesus, right? Yeah. Think about Jesus. Christ Jesus is perfect, righteous, holy, loving. He's all joy all the time. He's all peace all the time. He's that friend that uh, all, all the friend that anyone could ever want. And we are called sons like Jesus is called God's son. Seriously. How does that work? Because of what Jesus has done, we get to be sons. And what it means is everything that is true of Jesus is now true of me. On my uh, worship application uh, for people that want to be in the worship ministry, I have a little application and, and they, it's to get to know them. And there's a question on my worship application that goes like this. It's a true or false question. And it's exactly that line. True or false, I want you to answer it, okay, just in your head. True or false, 
everything that is true of Jesus is true of me. Now, I put that on the application without all of this context. And so, uh, there's really, it's a, really a trick question because there's no wrong answer. The answer reveals which way you tend to lean, whether you lean to law or promise or truth or grace or love or holiness. Because is it true that everything that is true of Jesus is true of me? Absolutely, that's what this scripture teaches. But is it also false that everything that is true of Jesus is true of me? Well, yeah, because I can't live up to the perfect life that Jesus lived. And so the interesting thing is, I don't think I've ever received an application where somebody has answered true. Everything that is true of Jesus is true of me. Because we don't think we're worthy of being God's son. And you're right. You're not. But because of what Jesus has done, you are anyway. You're a son. One more thing about this son business. Um, the, that phrase that we are all sons of God just may happen to kind of alienate about half of you. Do you feel that way? <laughs> we are all sons of God. In fact, some translations, the NIV does this, translate that word children to make sure that about half of you aren't offended when you read it. But I want you to understand that doing that causes you to miss the radicalness of what Paul was saying. In most ancient cultures, daughters could never inherit property. And so to be called a son was to be called an heir. It was to say, this person gets all I have. And that was a status that was forbidden to women. And so what's Paul saying? He's saying, you all, men and women, are sons. You all, even you women, are sons. You are legal heirs of God in Christ. And I don't want you to miss how radical a statement that was in a day where women were not allowed to testify in court. They were largely seen as property. They were totally dependent and at the mercy of the men in their life. And Paul comes in and he, in Jesus Christ, gives them equal status. So women in the room, understand what Paul is saying and own the fact that you get to be sons, heirs, because of what Jesus has done. We are all sons. Number two, we are all clothed. Because of the promise of God, and it has come to us in Christ through faith, and in baptism, we are all clothed. Three quick thoughts about baptism. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. In fact, I'm going to Write this up, and I'll send it out in our newsletter. By the way, if you're not getting our newsletter, we need your email, and you'll get it, okay? On baptism, three points here in this, uh, in this text. Number one, it is the doorway of salvation. It's the entrance point. It's the way to get into Abraham's family. Number two, it's not a work. It can't be because Paul has spent this whole chapter arguing that works and law-keeping don't save you, and yet here is baptism, and it's... It's uh, an unavoidable part of the salvation process. Number three, it is when we are clothed. Paul says, for those of you who have been baptized into Christ, have been clothed with Christ. And that event happens simultaneously. 
But what we're after here is what happens because we've been baptized. And that's Paul's point here. We are clothed. I want to ask you a question. Why did you decide to wear what you wore here today? Clothes are so important to us psychologically. And this idea that Paul brings up, he says, when you're baptized, you are clothed in Christ. It speaks to some amazing things. It speaks to our identity. Our clothing tells people who we are. If I came up on the stage and I was dressed in black leather boots and black chaps and a black uh, leather jacket and I had some sunglasses on and I had some gloves that uh, went about halfway up my fingers and I had some, uh, a helmet underneath my arm, you would rightly conclude that I probably rode up on a certain vehicle and it was parked outside and that vehicle would be a golf cart. Yes, golf cart. <laughs> I rode up on my golf. No, no, it's a motorcycle, right? That, that's what clothes give us away. Nearly every kind of clothing is actually a uniform. It shows what we want to be identified, what group we're a part of, or what group we want to be a part of. And to say that Christ is our clothing is to say that our ultimate identity is found not in any jersey we might wear, not in any uniform, but in Christ himself. It speaks to our identity. It speaks to our uh, dependence. Our our clothes are kept closer to us than any other possession. They go with us wherever we go. And this last week, oh my goodness, my wool socks went everywhere with me. How many of you were there? Yes. Negative 14. What was that? Uh, They go everywhere with you. So to say Christ is our clothing means that he goes everywhere with us. It's a moment-by-moment dependence that we have on him. And that's, that goes beyond wearing a WWJD bracelet. That, that is to understand that he's present with us always. And if he's present with us always, that speaks to imitation. Imitation. To practice the presence of Christ entails that we continually think and act as if we were directly before his face. We are always walking before him. It means to take Jesus into every area of life and change it according with his will and his spirit. We are to put on his virtues and his actions. Just like a little kid, uh, boys and girls might pretend to be princes and princesses. Or maybe little kids might dress up as their superhero and they begin to fly around the room, right? They do, the, they do the superhero pose. They would never do that if they weren't clothed in superhero clothing, but then, then they do this, right? Same with us. We are clothed in Christ, and we are to dress up like Jesus, and hopefully our clothes will lead us to imitate him and his life and his actions. Number four, it speaks to acceptability. There are... Lots of unwritten rules about what is acceptable with what you wear and what, what you can't wear. Um, if, if we wear something we love one day, it's, it's why we might say, you know what? I didn't see anybody important today and I really like what I have on, so I'm going to wear it tomorrow. Right? There are these unwritten rules. Sometimes our clothes determine whether or not we're going to be accepted. Do you want to golf at this golf course? You need a collared shirt. You need pants. Do you want to eat in this restaurant? You need a jacket. You need a tie. Do you want to get gas at this gas station? You need shirt and you need shoes, right? That's where most of us are. We're, trying, we're just trying to get in a gas station. Um, 
To say that Christ is our clothing says that God has covered our shame in Jesus. We are loved because of His work, because of His salvation. We are accepted. When God looks at us, He doesn't see no shirt, no shoes. He sees sons. He sees people that are clothed in Christ because Christ has given us His righteousness and His perfection to wear so that we are acceptable in His sight. And so this being clothed with Christ is a metaphor for a whole new life. It means to think of Christ constantly. It means to let Christ infuse and permeate everything we think and say and do. And that goes so far beyond just mere law-keeping and rules and regulations and keeping those. It goes beyond even simple obedience. To be in love with Jesus is to be immersed in Him, to be clothed with Him. Christians are people who will never need some additional commitment to the law of Moses in order to receive acceptance with God because we are clothed in Christ. Now, this next one is so simple you probably miss it. I, I missed it. What happens when we all put on Christ and we're all clothed with Him? It would be the same thing that would happen if we all put on blue t-shirts and khaki pants and white tennis shoes. What would that make us? It would make us all the same. The same. When we put on Christ, we are clothed with Him. We all look the same. And that's exactly what should happen. Paul expands on this idea in verse 28. He says, you're all sons, you're all clothed, but you are all one. You are all one. Because of the promise of God has come to us in Christ through faith in baptism, we are all one. And all the normal distinctions and dividing lines that are drawn up by the world and to chop people up into groups and classes and categories, all of those are irrelevant for our standing before God because we are in Christ. Somebody said it this way, the ground is even at the foot of the cross. That's right. Because we've all come through faith, no one is allowed any special privilege. No one sits on higher ground uh, and somebody else, while somebody else is sitting on lower ground. We all look the same when we're clothed with Christ. And there's an incredible movement here. Paul says, you are connected to God as sons in verse 26. In verse 27, he says, you're connected to Christ through baptism because he has clothed you in verse 27. Because of those two connections, verse 28, he says, you're connected to each other. You are one. And there's a wonderful closeness between Christians. There should be a unity between us. He says it this way. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And that is a radically relevant mission to be a part of. And it only is possible in Christ. There's no other system in the world where you can consistently, rationally call everybody equal except in Jesus. And Paul picks up on three barriers that usually divide people. There's usually a cultural barrier that sometimes divides us, Jew and Greek. There's sometimes an economic barrier that divides us. He says, in the church, those shouldn't be the case. That shouldn't be the case. And number three, he says, sometimes there's a gender gap that divides us. There's no longer male or female. And that's perhaps the strongest barrier of Paul day, Paul's day. And maybe it's the, it's the most explosive hot button in our day too. Women 
in Paul's day were considered absolutely inferior to men. And part of the reason that they were not included um, in any of the promises was because they were, they were excluded from the requirement of circumcision. And that was interpreted by men to mean that women were lesser. And so we get comments like this in Jewish writing, oh, you're going to love these. May the words of the Torah be burned, lest they be handed over to a woman. Next one. Women are greedy, inquisitive, lazy, vain, and frivolous. These are Jewish writings. Happy is he whose children are males, and woe to him whose children are females. Ten measures of empty-headedness have come upon the world, nine having been received by women, and one by the rest of the world. Ouch. Next. Conversation should not be held with a woman, even if she is your wife. Anybody mad yet? Yeah. There's about half the room that's mad. The other half just shut up. Don't, don't say a thing, okay? In Paul's day, there was a common prayer uttered by the Pharisees. Paul surely would have learned it. It goes this way. O oh Lord, ruler of the universe, I thank you that you did not make me a Gentile or a slave or a woman. Look at what Paul just wrote here in Galatians. The pattern is even the same. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. If Paul ever did pray that prayer, he can't pray it anymore. Christ won't allow it because everybody is one in Christ. We may have different roles to play, but in Christ, every category stands before God complete in Jesus. The ground is even at the foot of the cross. And so here's where we stand. God loves us, and so he promised us life. God demands payment for sin, so he sets his law in place, and both he is God of, uh, God of both love and promise. And how will that work? How in the world do those two things come together only in Jesus? because of the substitutionary atonement of Christ that God's law is kept and his love is extended. There's a guy named Horatius and he has a long quote. I want to read it to you because it's so good. He says this, By Christ's substitution, and especially at the moment of his death upon the cross, and only at that moment God's love and law are both satisfied. On the cross and only on the cross, the love and standards of God perfectly and brilliantly coincide and shine forth together. Jesus was smitten to satisfy the justice of God since that stroke paid for the sins. And yet at the same time, he was smitten to satisfy the love of God since that stroke secured our salvation. He goes on in another section. He says, both love and law on the cross have triumphed. The one has not given way to the other. Each has kept its ground. Each has come from the conflict honored and glorified. Never has there been love like this love of God. So large, so lofty, so intense, so self-sacrificing. Yet never has a law been so pure, so broad, so glorious, and so inexorable. There has been no compromise. Law and love have both had their full scope. Not one jot or tittle has been surrendered to the full, the one in all its severity, the other in all of its tenderness. Love has never been more truly loved. 
And the law has never been more truly law than the moment Christ died. The gospel isn't love or law. The gospel is love fulfilling the law. And it's the law having been fulfilled by love. And inexplicably, we've just spent 30 minutes here trying to explain it. And it's still amazing. It's an amazing statement to make, and we don't quite understand it, even though we've spent time on it. God continues to be the forgiving God who never forgives. That's only possible in Jesus. And so what do you do about that? Today, let me give you some options. Maybe today, you need to begin to declare to yourself the truth, I am a son. My deeds knocked me out of the inheritance, but Christ's life and his sacrifice put me back in, and I'm a son. Maybe you need to put your identity where it truly belongs, in Jesus, and stop looking for value in other places. You are clothed with Christ, and you are God's own. Maybe you need to assess honestly that in your heart you haven't been treating other people in this room or out in the world the same. You've placed yourself a little higher and them a little lower because you believe you're more beautiful, you're more worthy, you're more capable, you're more intelligent, you're more mature, whatever it is. With you, the ground at the cross is slanted down and you're at the top and everybody else is down there. You've forgotten that we only get to the cross when we trust Jesus. That no one has the upper hand. Everyone comes the same way. Let that be translated in how you treat people even this week. And finally, maybe there are some, some of you here that have never taken that step to be in Christ. The baptistry is right over here. And the baptistry is how we are clothed. The baptistry is how we accept Christ and how we become sons. Maybe that's your step today to be an heir, to be part of Abraham's family. That's how Paul ends this section, verse 29. He says, if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. Oh, dear idiots, you're after the right thing. You want to be a part of Abraham's family. You're just going about it in the wrong way. The objective is right, but the strategy is wrong. You can't obey the law enough to, to be a part of Abraham's family. It only comes by promise. It only comes by putting your faith in Christ. And when that happens, at baptism, you are Abraham's seed. You are heirs according to the promise. And all that God promised Abraham, you and I will enjoy as well. Because we are sons. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can be in Jesus I pray you'll remind us again today that Jesus is enough. That he is the only. Help us to break free from the babysitter. Let us be grown-ups who love rather than children who fear. Let us act as sons who are clothed with Christ so that our actions towards one another reflect who we are. Father, we pray in the name of our covering, Jesus Christ. Everybody said.